a powerful book. It is full of powerful thoughts, things that ought to lift us up and give us courage. Give us courage. We ought not to look at the book of Revelation as simply a book that tells us it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it. More than we can ever imagine, our faithfulness to the Lord will be worth it uh, in the end. No doubt about that. But what that is meant to do for us now is to give us a great deal of courage. And I hope and pray that, that we can see that as we go through some of these studies. Great encouragement is found in the opening vision that John uh, sees in Revelation chapter 1. He sees a wonderful vision of Jesus and many wonderful aspects of the Lord's uh, character and teaching and, and uh, sonship is brought out in Revelation chapter 1. Last week we noticed that John was invited up, heaven was open, and he was invited up to be able to observe the very throne of God. And what a wondrous scene uh, that is. And we looked at those features last week from the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. You might picture yourself one, one year, even before our children were born, I think, Kelly and I went to... Uh, the Huntsville Space and Rocket Center and they had a little simulation there called Journey to Jupiter and it was as if you were an astronaut and you were about to get in a capsule and be blasted off into space and it was great it was a great simulation I mean you felt like you were it was the countdown and you were you were blasted off and just before you blast off uh, the, uh, the little rocket uh, begins to shake, and this, so the seat you're sitting in, uh, in that auditorium, sh- begin to shake, and all the noise that would go along with being blasted off into space, and so they, they blasted you off into space, and you get to Jupiter, and you, you just, you just tour Jupiter, and John is, is invited up to the very throne of God, and as it were, he just is in a little craft and he's just able to just take a look and and then relate to us what he sees. Very powerful images, easily detected, easily uh, translated into our lives. When you get to Revelation 5, there is, John sees a scroll and it's a prophetic scroll and it's sealed with seven seals. And the issue in Revelation 5 is who can possibly open up these seals and open up the scroll? There's only one. Only one. He deserves all our praise and all our devotion. That one, of course, is Christ. One particular thought we had from last week, Revelation 5 and verse 6, this is the one who as a lamb was slain, but he's also a lamb that is standing. A lamb that was slain, but a lamb that was standing. And so, great praise is given from, the, from those around the throne to the Lamb because He is the one who's able to open up this scroll. And so now, in Revelation 6, we get to start opening up these different seals. Seven seals uh, close um, this scroll. So to see the scroll, you've got to open up each seal. Each seal has a symbol behind it. Remember... We are dealing with symbols here. Heaven is not a literal place. This is not 
This is not real paper. This is not a real ribbon. This is, these are all symbols in a way to relate to us what the Lord wants us uh, to see and to know. Okay, so we have different segments of our lesson. And we'll just kind of get into our lesson and see what we can do with this. Revelation uh, 6, 1 through 8 uh, deals with the four horsemen. You might have heard of these, the four horsemen. So when, when uh, the Lamb opens up the first seal, you notice verses uh, 1 and 2, there is going to be a white horse, and the rider upon it will have a bow, and he'll have a crown, and he is going forth, and he is conquering. He's conquering. So obviously the white horse uh, stands for victory or conquering. And then in verses 3 and 4, the next seal, the second seal, is open. And the color of the horse there is what? Red. And this, of course, stands for bloodshed and for taking peace away from the earth and for war. And so um, this, there will be a period of bloodshed. Okay. And then... The third seal is open, and the color of the horse then is what? The black. Verses um, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. 5 and 6. And black stands for famine. Oftentimes what you have associated with war is famine. And so you notice here some different measures of barley and grain are measured out. In other words, in a famine there's ridiculous prices for things. Prices go haywire. Uh, when there's a famine, and it makes things hard on everybody. And so the black horse in that time period would be a time of famine. And then the color of the horse in verses 7 and 8 is pale, and that is uh, interpreted for us here that the rider upon that is death followed by a Hades. Okay. So four pictures here with the four horsemen, a picture of white and victory, a picture of red and bloodshed and war, a picture of black, which relates to us famine and uh, great desperation, and then the, um, the pale horse representing death in Hades. And John said at the beginning of this book that the things that he would see, and he was, John was told, that the things that he would see would be things that would come to, to pass shortly. Okay. And so... These different pictures represent to us a time frame that likely lasts throughout the rule of uh, the Caesars in the Roman Empire and probably on into the development of the Catholic Church uh, years. Okay. But uh, it's just generally pointing out to us that this will be a time of great devastation. And so... Even though the early Christians were seeing quite a bit of persecution, they had not seen anything yet. There was still a great deal of desperation, turmoil uh, to come, and the Lord is preparing them for, that, for these occasions. Okay. Now notice here in, uh, in your Bible, in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 6, Notice uh, with verse 2, it says, John says, I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. Notice that. 
it was given to him. All right, then notice verse 4 in regard to the second seal. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Notice he was permitted and was given. Was given. And then notice verse 8. says, I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and there was they were given they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of uh, the earth. So I want you to notice that that each of these time periods and whoever is is active in these time periods were um, they were being uh, permitted by God uh, to have these uh, powers. They were, they were given by permission. In other words, it, God was allowing these things to occur. Okay. Which tells us that even when things look like they're way out of hand, even when things seem very chaotic, we can know that Christ is still in control. This is one of the great reasons for the book of Revelation. Even though pestilence was, was going to be coming, even though persecution would be coming, even though bloodshed would be coming, even though death would be coming, still, the Lord would still very much be in control. And so verses 1 through 8 is some very general references to things that they could expect to come uh, their way. All right? So that gets us through about verse 8. Now, Opening up the fifth seal, beginning with verses 9 through 11, John is allowed to see the souls under the altar. The souls under the altar. And so our focus will be on verses 9 through 11 and the opening up of this fifth seal. We will notice different aspects of these verses and it is within, th- within these verses that we see so much of the courage that we need to uh, gain in our lives. Okay. So let's get started with these. Tell you what, since we're on these verses, let's just read them together. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Master, O Master, or O Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Okay. And so... John is able to see souls under the altar. Let's, let's, let's talk about this just a second. Let's focus on the souls. Of course, we understand the word soul is often used in the Bible. Sometimes, rarely, but sometimes, the word soul will be used to refer to an entire person, both body and soul. Uh, for example, um, 1 Peter 3 talks about eight souls saved by water. 1 Peter 3, verse 20. Talk about the entire person. 
But most often in the Bible, the word soul is used uh, to refer to our inward man. Okay? That intelligent part of us, uh, that conscious part of us that is made in the image of God. That, that's the soul. Okay. And notice the existence of the soul here with these fellows under the altar. Now remember, these souls under the altar, they have been buried, they have been burned, uh, they have been devoured by animals, some have been beheaded, some have been thrown into the sea, um, various ways in which they had encountered death of the body, but still they're here, they're, there they are. They're very much existing, even after, after death. So we rejoice in the existence of the soul. We're, we're, we're thankful the way the Lord has, has made us. We are, we're, we're two parts. We're the, the body and the soul. When we die, the body returns to the ground from which it came, the dust, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, and our spirit goes to God. So body and soul. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10 and 28, Fear not them that kill the body, but after that they have no more they can do. But fear him, rather, who can kill both, destroy both soul and body. Soul and body. Okay. So these under the altar, their bodies had been destroyed, but they're very much alive. Their souls are, are right there. Okay. Remember what James said in James 2 and verse 26. He said, for uh, the body without the spirit is dead, so faith, faith without works. Faith without works is dead. Wonderful discussion about faith. But he uses the idea of the soul and body. The body without the spirit is dead, so faith, with, faith without works is dead. And of course, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul talks about the inward man and outward man. Right? He said our outward man is perishing and our inward man is renewed day by day. So the existence of, of the soul. Now, also, the soul after death is very much alive and aware. It's conscious. It has a consciousness about it. We know this because notice uh, these, these souls, verse 10, uh, they cry out so they're able to speak. Um, they're able to ask a question. They're able to remember about their fellow servants on the earth. Um, they're able to know what is going up, going on with them, and what they remember what is happening on the earth. And so they're able to reason. They're able to listen. Okay? They will be given a white robe so they're able to receive. And so they're very much aware of what's taking place. It's very parallel to what Jesus uh, gave us in Luke 16, 19-31 about the rich man and Lazarus and how both of them died but both of them very much alive after uh, their death very much aware very much able to take on carry on the conversations and, and, and remember what was on earth remember the rich man was concerned about his brothers back on earth and so these souls are not only existing and alive and, but they're also aware and conscious uh, even after uh, their death and the big thing here is they have been slain. They have been slain. So let's focus on that for just a minute. The idea that these souls have been slain. This is where the idea of the altar comes in. 
because uh, under the under the Mosaic system, uh, worship was conducted through animal sacrifice. A reference here to put down might be Leviticus 4 and verse 7, where it talks about the blood of the animal being sprinkled on, on top, on the altar, but then the rest of the blood is poured underneath the altar. Okay. So, the, the early Christians would be very much... Um, familiar with some of these Old Testament images like the altar and the sacrifice. And so they're using these things to kind of give, them, give some encouraging messages uh, to, to these brethren. And so John is able to see the souls under the altar. Okay. They have been slain. So in comparison, in, under the Mosaic system, the blood of the animal was poured out under the altar. But now look who's under the altar now uh, pictured in heaven. Okay, it's, it's the blood of the saints. It's the saints themselves under the altar. They have been slain. Okay. Now this goes right along with the fact that under the covenant of Jesus, he makes us all priests. Notice this. We went over this in Revelation 5, but in your Bibles, glance up, uh, to Revelation 5. Um, let's just read verse 9 onward. Uh, Revelation 5 verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them, notice this, verse 10, Revelation 5. You have made them a kingdom and priest to God and they shall reign on the earth. So when we come in contact with the blood of Jesus through our obedience, that's a purchasing of us by God, by Christ. He puts us through that purchase in his kingdom, and he makes of us priests unto God. Okay. So as New Testament priests, what then is our sacrifice? What, what sacrifice? A priest can't do his work without sacrifice. So with this spiritual altar in our minds and then us being priests, what is it that priests sacrifice? Okay. Well, we don't have to guess about that. Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. What does Paul say? He says, I beg you, brethren, I urge you, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, what does that say? Yeah. That you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your, your um, some translations have your spiritual worship, but your reasonable service. But the priest will offer something, and as New Testament priests, we give ourselves to the Lord. If need be, we give our very physical lives to the Lord. Okay. Now jump over to 2 Corinthians 8 for just a second. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Remember Paul's encouragement of these brethren to, to um, pick up in their giving. And he mentioned other churches not near as wealthy as Corinth who were giving uh, much to the Lord. Well, here's the secret. 
Notice in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves, they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The secret of their giving was they had already given themselves to the Lord. And that's the way it, that's the way it plays out. That's, that's the idea of New Testament Christianity. And so notice that these brethren that John is able to see here in Revelation 6, they have been and are New Testament priests. And they had taken to heart the fact that a priest is to sacrifice himself, if need be, for the Lord. So as we, as we make our way through this, please, because we don't have time to just elaborate, but please um, see the courage, remember the courage that these brethren would have had to willingly give themselves uh, for the Lord. So you see the altar there, and then um, these brethren would not just give themselves because they're priests, but because they wanted to be like Christ. They wanted to be in fellowship with Christ. These early saints thought that if I'm going to be walking with Christ, I've got to be willing to suffer and to risk it all for Him. Okay, Let's notice a couple of those passages. Turn with me to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. And you know Paul, the Apostle Paul, really well, so you're not surprised as he reviews his religious life force throughout chapter 3 of Philippians. And then he says, I I suffered the loss, Philippians 3, verse 8, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, in order I might be found in Him, verse 9, Philippians 3, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That, notice this, okay, this is one of the star verses, Philippians 3, verse 10. Paul says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and that I may share or have fellowship with his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's one thing that, that the early Christians had about them. They wanted to be like Christ in everything. To be like Christ. To be willing to suffer. We remember in Matthew, not Matthew, Acts 5, I should say Acts 5, when they released Peter and John, but before they released them, they beat them. And then you read in Acts 5, 40-42 that when they released Peter and John, that Peter and John rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for His name, for the name of Jesus. And they did not cease to preach and teach Jesus. The very thing that got them beaten, they went back to do. They went right back to the temple and they continued to go house... Uh, to house. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that powerful? What did Paul want? What did Peter want? What did John want? They wanted to be like Christ in his sufferings. So there in Philippians 2, also in verse 17, 
while you're if you're still in Philippians, Philippians two seventeen, Paul said, "If I if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all." Notice what Paul's saying. He said, "If it comes down to me being sacrificed in order to help your faith as a sacrificial offering upon the altar, he says, I am glad to do it. I rejoice to have that opportunity to do it." Okay. This helps us to see. Um, where our faith uh, needs to be to listen to these new uh, these these early saints talk. Second Timothy chapter four verse six. You remember Paul saying, "I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand." He was ready to be offered. He, that's a that's again that's an Old Testament image to be offered on the altar. I'm ready now to be poured out. I'm ready to be offered on that altar. And so that's, that's what these saints had in mind. That's, that's when they were willing to give themselves for Christ. So they had been slain. These, these souls under the altar, they had been slain. They were priests. They put themselves on the altar for Christ. They wanted to be like Christ. Here in verse number 9 then, why had they been slain? For what reason? Yeah, for the word of God and what? And the testimony which they held. So for the word of God and for the testimony. So we don't, they didn't die a natural cause. It was very specific because they wanted to see the word of God. They want to continue to do the will of God regardless of what might happen to them. Okay. So for the will of God and the testimony, the word of God. You might compare Revelation 1 verse 9. That's why John is on, on the Isle of Patmos in the first place. right? Because of the word of God that he had been preaching and the testimony that he had been given uh, toward that. Okay. So John says in Revelation 1 verse 9, he said, I'm a companion with you, brethren, in this tribulation. I'm a companion with you. I'm, I'm here with you in this. But they all wanted to be like Christ. So for the word of God and the testimony which they held... The idea is to, to hold something tightly, to tightly clutch uh, something. Uh, they were not going to, they were not going to let go of their faith. And again, put yourself there. Okay, you're being threatened with being devoured by animals, being thrown into the uttermost parts of the sea, being butchered, having your head cut off. All you got to do is deny Christ. That's all you got to do. But they would not do that. They're, they held tightly to their faith. It causes us to, to say, okay, what are some things that people give up their faith for in our day? Well, whatever that might be, it's going to be a little bit trivial compared to what these brethren were doing. They would not give up their faith no matter what. It's, it's an amazing uh, thought um, it says they have been slain. The idea of that, um, of those verbs, is that their their death still had an Im- abiding impact, uh, e- and even now it does. I mean, we're reading about it, but even in those early days, when you gave up your life for Christ, it, it had a wonderful impact. People. It, it, it strengthened the faith of all your other brethren and generations to come who wanted to follow Christ. It had a 
really powerful impact even after they were gone. Okay. Like a very much, they were martyrs, martyrs for Christ. Right. Their names will never be uh, forgotten. Okay, so going on to verse 10, the souls under the altar asked a question. How long, O Master, how long will it be until you avenge our blood and that was shed upon the earth? How long? How long? We've got about four things we want to think about here in verse 10. How long? How long? <clears throat> Notice that when someone dies, they do not become... God. They don't become all-knowing. Okay. We will always be the servants. Christ will always be the master. We will always be the created ones. God will always be the creator. That doesn't change when we get to heaven. We will still be serving the Lord. They did not automatically know everything. They had questions. We've got questions now. We'll have questions when we get to heaven. They're saying, how long, Lord? They didn't automatically know that. Just, just because they're out of now of the confines of the earth and, and just because they're in the very presence of God now and able to, to have some very sacred communications doesn't mean they automatically started knowing everything that God knows. There's only one God. And all of us are, are students, disciples, servants of His, thankful to be so. Okay. So they ask the question, oh, how long? How long? Then they, they, they address him as old master, the older versions. Some versions have uh, so, what, sovereign God, sovereign God or something like that. Uh, master, master is really the literal uh, translation here, master. It, it denotes somebody who, is, um, who has all power, absolute power, and ownership. And that's how we think of God, right? Psalm 24, verse 1, talks about God being the owner of all the earth and the fullness thereof. Flip over with me to Acts chapter 4. I love to notice how people start prayers. Notice how they started this prayer in Acts 4, 24. This just kind of relates to how they're addressing um, the Lord here in Revelation 6. So they start their prayer here in Acts four twenty four, and when they and when they heard it, and when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, uh, "Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and by the Holy Spirit spoke." And then they started quoting from the Old Testament. But the one who made the heaven and the earth, the one who is the one, the one who is powerful, the one who has absolute control, by the one who has created everything. So they ask, uh, O Master, O Master, O Master. Now, it would appear from the human standpoint that them being dead, that the powers of the world were reigning heavily and they were all in control. But notice how these souls under the altar address the Lord. They know 
They know better. They know who's in control. They know very well that, that the Lord Jesus, the, the, the one God of the Bible, is in control, regardless of, of what people in the world may think. The one in control is, is the true Lord. And that's, that's how they're thinking, uh, even after they have been slain for the word of God and for his testimony. So how long, O Master? How long, O Master? And then notice it says they would expect justice. They're expecting the Lord to avenge uh, their blood. There's only one avenger, and that's the Lord God. Why would they expect that God would avenge the blood that's shed? Notice what they're basing this on. They're saying... O Master, holy and true. Is that what your Bible said? Holy and true. See, They're expecting justice because of the character of God. He is holy and He is true. Okay. God is so holy and true that when there is evil, it has to be punished. That's, that's their concrete belief. They know that about their God. They don't look at God as being so loving that he would never punish anybody. No, just the opposite. He's holy and true. Okay. Or as Revelation 11, uh, 22 says, that there's the goodness and the severity of God. Right. They know that about God. They expect that he would, he would avenge the blood eventually. Okay. So it kind of lets you in on, on what the, how they think about the Lord. By the way, our final reward or wherever it is that we end up in eternity will be based on the character of God and how we have responded to it. Okay. We know him to be holy, then we're going to want to walk in his steps and ask his forgiveness and lean upon him in the shed blood of Jesus all the days of our lives. Okay. But if we ignore his holiness and the truth found in his word, then that also will determine our destiny uh, in eternity. And so they look to the Lord as being the holy and true one, and they fully expect that he will one day in his own good way and time avenge uh, the blood that has been shed against Christians. Now, some people look at this and they say, well, they're being vengeful. Even there in heaven, why are, they, why are they being so bitter and why are they wishing something bad to come on other people? That doesn't sound very Christian. Okay. Well, it's not bitterness, it's righteousness. That's what it is. It's righteousness. They're not asking for this avenging to take place for their sake, but for God's sake. They're not concerned about their name. They're concerned about God's name. They had, they had placed their trust and their confidence and hope in the Lord. Totally. Obviously, they had. Okay. And they were concerned for the, the name of God and his cause. That that be avenged. Okay. And on Judgment Day, that's exactly what will happen. God will avenge. We have to remember that, that whatever is done to God's people, 
is just like doing it to him. They had slain his people. They had just done that to God. That's how God feels about it. Remember when Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus? Acts chapter 9. Why do you persecute me? And Saul of Tarsus had been persecuting the Christians. But Christ said, why are you persecuting me? This is part, this is, this is a huge statement. And this is part of Revelation 6 here. Okay. The, the righteousness here, the vindication they're speaking of, is that God's name will be honored. Look at your Bibles in Revelation 2. Ah. Real, real quick, when you're on vindication, yeah. uh, in 2 Timothy 4, 14, Paul talks about Alexander accomplished me and did me much good. The Lord rewarded him according to his works. Is he talking about that vindictive statement? Or? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's Paul, that's a good statement there. Second Timothy 4, what verse is that? 17? Yeah, when he talks about Alexander Cochran Smith, Paul is addressing him the same way these souls are addressing the situation in Revelation 6. Okay, it's, it's not a personal vengeance. It is, you know, Lord, you will do what's right. And the, all those who are not willing to repent will then feel, feel your full justice. Not that Paul wished him. Of course, Paul spent his life help, trying to help people not to have to encounter the wrath of God for eternity. But if he's going to make that choice anyway, then, then God's vindication will be known one day. Uh, so I didn't mean to say Revelation 2. I meant to say Romans 2. Look at Romans 2. And um, verse 5, Romans 2, verse 5, Paul says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now underline that. On that day of wrath, of course it's a day of joy for us, but on that final day it will be a day of wrath for some. Notice what it says. It says, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that's what these early saints who had died for the Lord were talking about. They're talking about the righteous judgment of God being revealed. And that's what they're asking for. What they're asking for. And that's what they're hoping toward. It's it's really a wonderful thought. Remember when... um, uh, Cain killed Abel. What God said to Cain. He said, uh, The voice of your brother's blood cries out unto me. Genesis 4, verse, verse 10. The voice of your brother's blood cries out unto me. When someone kills God's servant, the Lord stands up and takes notice. The righteous judgment of God. So you see this question here in in Revelation 6 and verse 10. And then it brings us to verse 11. The response is that these under the the altar are given a white robe. Now, white can mean two things. It does mean two things 
in the book of Revelation. It means purity. Okay? Revelation 7.14 talks about those who had um, the robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, pure now, being cleansed of their sin. But oftentimes the word white means victory. Victory. When you turn over to Revelation chapters 19 and 20, and you, you, hear all, you see all these images of the final day. Like Revelation 19 and verse 11 and 12, and Revelation 20 verses 11 and 12. Jesus is coming in white, and there's a white horse involved there. This is victory. There's a victory. And that's what this means here in this context. They have been slain for the word of God. Okay. They had already been forgiven of their sins. Okay. They're, they're in eternity with God. Okay. They're, not given, they're not being given a white robe in the sense of purity and forgiveness, but in the sense of final victory. Final victory. And again, now these souls, their bodies have been buried and they have been dead. And from the viewpoint on earth, these saints have been defeated. They had lost. But actually, the reverse is true. The reverse is true. Let us never let go of that. You can bet, whichever way the world is going, the reverse is true. You can bet on that. And we need to remember that. Whatever it might appear to be, oftentimes is the very opposite of what the reality is. And especially when it comes to the final reward. We may not have a single possession to our name when we die. That means nothing. Because the Lord will give us a white robe of victory. And then these uh, souls under the altar are told to rest for a little while. Rest for a little while. So you can, you know, how long is a little while? I personally believe they're being told to wait for Judgment Day because the latter chapters of the book of Revelation really picture Jesus coming in victory on, on Judgment Day having a sword, having the word of God, and he is going to do his judgment. Okay. But some say, well, a little while. Why would it say little? Well, you've got to remember time with God is different than time with man. We learned that from Peter in 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. What does that say? A thousand years is what? Yeah. With the Lord, a thousand years is one day, and one day is a thousand years. Time spoken of in regard to the Lord is very flexible and kind of relative. Okay. So, from 2,000 years ago to whenever Judgment Day is, whenever the Lord comes again, in the Lord's situation, His nature, that can be just a little time. We sing the song, don't we? Just a little, how's that song go? Just a little while to stay here? Just a little while to, to wait? Just a little while to stay here? I believe the person who wrote that song understood it in that way, that 
there's a time coming when the Lord comes that our waiting will be over. Until then, we've got to have a great deal of endurance, patience, faithfulness, and courage. Courage. Okay. So, that brings us down to verse 11 and the opening up of the fifth seal. Don't you feel better already? That's what this book is about. It's about making someone feel uplifted, encouraged by these examples, by the pictures of the throne of God. Okay. Remember last week we, we saw the throne of God, sea of glass. And we said that could remind us of the Red Sea victory back in Exodus. And it had a rainbow out, coming out of the throne. That can remind us of God's promises, that He does keep His promises. Well, further now, as we begin to open up this book, Sealed with Seven Seals, we see the examples of the early saints and the power that can have for our own lives. I wish I had the ability to relate what is in these verses better because it is, it is meant to give us a great deal of um, encouragement. So, we um, coming up toward the end of our class period, I believe. Was there some kind of buzzer that went off a minute ago? 